Hi everyone, I'm Ben. And I'm Hio. Welcome to Sustainable Energy Asia podcast. Today, we're receiving Olivier Duguay, founder and CEO of the Blue Circle. The Blue Circle is an onshore wind developer operating in Southeast Asia, and is the only foreign developer to have one capacity in the Thailand Renewable Energy Auction in 2023. We discussed Olivier's experience in developing wind projects in Europe and Southeast Asia, his views on the drivers behind wind cost reduction and technological advancement, and last but not least, the key factors in winning the auction in Thailand. As always, grateful if you could take the time to rate and comment on the show. It helps listeners to find us. Thanks, and on with the show. Hi, Olivier. Welcome to the show. Could you introduce yourself and explain to us how you came to establish the Blue Circle and develop wind project in Asia? Thank you very much for inviting me and giving me this opportunity today to talk about uh, my favorite subject, wind power and renewable energy in Asia, the company I co-founded and I'm still managing since 2013, 10 years ago already, the Blue Circle I acquired in Singapore and developing renewable energy projects, first of all in Southeast Asia, but now a little bit larger in South Asia, I would say, mainly focusing on wind. So we're still trying to get into solar and hydro and the likes. What made me come to Asia. I've done the same, in fact, in France. And in the year 2000, I founded one of the largest renewable-only IPPs in France, uh, focusing on wind first and then hydro and solar. The idea was to be one of the pioneers and try to push as much as we can the renewable penetration in all the Southeast Asia countries. That's great. So today, we're going to talk first about onshore wind project development and then move to Thailand Renewable Energy Auction. First, could you explain what are the main steps to develop a wind project? Very simple. We used to say we need three things. First, wind. This is obvious. Wind is the main resource. Uh, and to do this, uh, we are mapping. We have a very powerful digital mapping tools we use everywhere we go. Always need to record the wind on site with MedMast uh, or SPDAR or LIDAR. Before even going to the site, before entering a new country, we know already where the main wind spots and sweet spots are. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second one is you need the grid. You need to be able to export this energy to the main grid. So this is quite different from one country to the other. Example, in, in Thailand, nearly all the projects are 30, 40 kilometers from the grid, which is very far from any other standards. Otherwise, we'll try to select the sites less than 10 kilometers from a connection point. The shorter the connection point, the lower the cost, so the more effective the production could be. And then the third point is access. And this is a main point. Most of the time in most of the countries in Southeast Asia, we are not installing wind turbines where there is the most wind because it's impossible to access or too far from any grid or any access. We've increased our size of the turbines the last few years. Uh, we're talking about rotor diameters of uh, 170 meters, 180 meters. So blades of 75, 80, 85 meters long in one piece or in two pieces. And to get these equipments to the highest point, uh, this is a main challenge. So it's a combination of the three. And in the most cases, it's not the most windy sites. That's really interesting. And you have really interesting experience in Europe and Asia. What is your view on the key success factor for developer in Asia? Having your experience in Europe, what really differs between your experience in Europe and your experience here? Uh, and finally, if you can give a view on in which country do you think the developing wind assets is more attractive at the moment? And I know it's changing a bit all the time in Asia, but uh, it would be interesting to have your view at the current moment. What are you looking at? Key success factor, you have to be local. 
to understand the local context, especially in Southeast Asia. If you look at the, the main wind markets, Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, maybe Vietnam are most open to foreigners. We have been the first foreigner to build a wind farm in Vietnam, but that's the main point. For the moment, it's really a local thing and you have to fight against the incumbents. I would say land use regulation and laws are the most important. Before being a power producer, we are a real estate company. Just to say, not the case in solar, but in wind, it's about location, location, location. Every country has their own regulation, their own set of rules, written or unwritten, which are very difficult to grasp. So it took us a lot of time to get these local rules. So the main difference between developing projects in Asia and in Europe, I think that we are arriving here uh, renewable energy is quite new to the region. So the regulation is very light, I would say. An uh, example, in Thailand, when we started eight years ago, we happened to learn that and it's still the case in some other countries that there is no setback regulation. So setback regulation, meaning you cannot put wind turbines close to roads, high tension lines, uh, houses, villages, temples, all the nights. Uh, arriving here, we have seen that some of the players were not taking into account any of these uh, international standards. For example, in the Philippines, we have been very surprised uh, to see people literally living with their houses and family and their streets and um, livestock at the bottom of the turbine, which in the rest of the world, it's, it's forbidden. It's not possible. It's for security reason. And then we have been fortunate enough to have been heard. There is now a setback regulation in Thailand. We are totally sure and convinced that these regulations will come and have to come because it's for the sake of developing and having well-accepted projects. Finish on your third question on the countries. I would say the most attractive for wind developer in the region today is the Philippines. We're starting to see a lot of activity, mainly because President Marcos have changed the foreign ownership regulation. So we can be now 100% foreign owned. Uh, when you're working in renewables. And that's uh, one of the reasons why the market uh, is getting a lot of traction and will be one of the most attractive in the region. Oh, that's interesting. I think now we can look at the technology and costs. Since early 2000s, uh, wind turbines have increased in size and become more efficient at power generation. Recently, big data and artificial intelligence have demonstrated great potential in resource forecasting. I think over the last decade, we have seen significant technological advancements in onshore wind, and it is often claimed that the cost of wind energy has decreased. We're very curious, how do you see how much have the costs been reduced and what are the drivers behind those reductions? You're right. From the outside, it's still the same. You have one mast with uh, three blades on the top uh, spinning uh, with the wind uh, slowly. From far, you can think it's uh, exactly the same as uh, 20 years ago. Uh, in fact, you're totally right that uh, technology is evolving a lot. Going toward more favorable to Southeast Asia. Why? Because the next frontier of wind energy onshore is low wind side. So to increase the size of the market, we have to go to places where there is less wind speed, less wind. Uh, you're used to class with class one, class two, class three in terms of wind speeds. Now we are talking about class four, meaning lower and lower wind speeds, lower than six meters per second on average for one year. So uh, that's the new frontier. And what it means, it means that the rotor diameter, the swept area by the rotor uh, is increasing very fast. An example, in 2017, 
We installed in Vietnam the largest rotor diameter of Southeast Asia with turbines uh, 114 meters rotor diameter. In 2020, we were the first ones in Asia to install the largest rotor diameter with 158. So you see that in three years' time, we gain nearly 30 meters of blade length, and it's not over. It's going to continue. So it's increasing why to extract more energy out of the same wind. Means also that the megawatt installs, the generator on top of the nacelle, is also increasing. In 2017, we were talking about you know, two megawatt something turbines, and now we are talking about installing six megawatt turbines. All these technology changes are driven by the need to reduce cost and to be even more competitive tomorrow. We we'll still have to be competitive against fossil fuels, but I, I hope. Everybody listening to this are convinced that the renewable energy are the cheapest. We are much cheaper than any other fossil fuels on the planet. So that's been the case for the last five years. And it's even more the case today with energy crisis following the recurrent war, especially for wind. We have a much bigger and much fiercer competitor with solar. In fact, we are competing against solar and solar today in most of the cases. That's the lowest cost producer in renewables today. So we need to adapt, we need to compete. Uh, it's not exactly the same. The big difference is the number of per megawatt installed. Because with the increase of size of the rotor, uh, turbines are more and more effective. And for the same cost of uh, megawatt installed, uh, we are now able to produce 10%, 15% more. Uh, and that's where the cost decrease is. Uh, you can uh, take advantage of this in two ways. You can go in lower wind speeds. So in that case, you will have the same production as higher wind speeds per sites. And so you will be as competitive with lower wind speeds sites. Or you can still target the high wind speed, but it's more and more difficult to find. That's really interesting. I think what you mentioned that wind energy assets overall cost has decreased, but not as much as has done solar. And I think that has a lot to do also with the fact that the capacity is increasing all the time and that leads to other engineering challenges on many parts of the assets that also have some cost. It's a bit less scalable as we grow in size compared to essentially solar PV where you do one thing and you just do it over and over again. So there's one thing I want also to discuss. We mentioned at the GWEC event we attended recently in the wind sector, the world is split in two on the OEM side. So there is the Western OEM, the big three, the GE, Siemens, Gamesa, and Vestas, and the China Chinese one. So there's many of them, SE Win, Gold Win, etc. And basically, they're supplying developers in different parts of the world, pretty much segregated, where the Chinese is dominant in China. Then these three Western players are basically the supplier in the Western world. But recently, we've seen Chinese OM entering some market in Europe. And they have indeed some cost advantage in terms of cost as uh, producing a, a bit cheaper. It would be interesting to have your view on how these Chinese O&M are competitive against the Western counterparts. And do you think that the Chinese O&M can take a significant market share in the international markets? We used to hear Chinese manufacturers have a cost advantage. They produce cheaper than others. Uh, no, that's not true. Because all the three you just mentioned, the Western ones for Asia, they all produce in the same place in China. The GE turbines are manufactured a few kilometers from the Goldwyn ones in the same place in China. In terms of cost competitiveness, I think they are playing on the same field. The very big difference is that for the last 10 years, 
China in terms of wind. Uh, I've been the largest market two or three times the size of all the others combined. They had a huge home market uh, to service for the last 10 years. Uh, so they can decrease the cost because of the size, given the size of their market and production. So, so I think the main competitive advantage that they can have is their own home market and the size of their home market, um, you know, Western uh, turbine manufacturers where they could be very big, but they have not a home market that size of China. So they are obliged to work on very different uh, locations and, and have a higher cost because of this. You're, you're right that the market is shifting. The Ukraine war has changed the world of energy, especially the Western Europe energy landscape. And now Western Europe is scrambling to build renewable energy capacity as fast as they can to compensate for the loss of gas from Russia mainly. So this makes a very big difference offshore, onshore. All the markets on fire, you know, the EU is streamlining regulation and the permits to allow renewable energy to install more capacity faster. The main capacity of the Western turbine manufacturers is stuck today. Vestas, uh, Siemens Gamesa, RGE, or others, they will tell you that they have nothing to sell outside of Western Europe. The market is so booming and the prices are pretty good, they don't care about selling to other markets. So uh, the market is now left alone to the Chinese uh, turbine manufacturers who are starting to see their own market going to a, a maturation phase. So they need to go international, they need to go abroad. You know, we are the first in Southeast Asia, South Asia, to receive these turbines and markets for them. This is a big market shift. I think most of them, not all, but most of them have uh, tackled their backability and their insurability issues. They are also getting used to the international markets, which is very different than China, where the turbine manufacturers have to take some more risk, not only giving away the turbines out of the factory, which is the case, I think, in China, and not even caring about the mast, not selling the turbines with the towers in China. For me, it was very surprising the first time I heard this. And the first time I talked to them, said, well, you, you take the turbines from my factory and, and you take care of it. But international markets is not working like this. If you want to sell your turbines, you have to install them and commission them and give me guarantees on them because otherwise I won't buy them. It was quite a few years ago. So now they are used to this. Now they are just starting to realize that international market is different. And you have to give long-term guarantees and long-term service also to that turbine. This is very new to the turbine manufacturers, but they are learning fast. That's interesting. And I think we had a good view on the onshore wind technology and the demand of these assets. But I'd like to uh, move to the Thailand Renewable Energy Auction. So the blue circle has been the only foreign company winning capacity in, in the first Thailand Renewable Energy Auction in March of this year. So congratulations for that. It would be quite interesting just to have your view on your experience. So prior to the Thailand Renewable Energy Auctions, could you describe what was the renewable energy procurement process in Thailand and whether you were already looking at these markets previously? Yes, I have a very good question. Thank you, Ben. It's uh, the, not the end, but uh, the example of the success after a long, long in, uh, development period. We have been in Thailand for the last eight years uh, working on these projects. Uh, it is the case nearly everywhere in the region when there is an option, when there is a fit-in tariff, uh, whatever is the scheme. Uh, if you're not ready long before this, it's too late. I've been uh, lobbying for wind power in the region for all these years. What was the situation when uh, we arrived uh, eight years ago? Uh, Thailand 
was the most interesting market in the world with the highest feed-in tariff. It would be more than $200 uh, per megawatt hour. Uh, so highest in the world, one of the highest of the whole energy mix uh, of Thailand. So when we arrived lobbying and asking for more wind megawatts, the first reaction from the ERC and all the different uh, government bodies was to say wind power is way too expensive. We don't want more. We had to explain the price today is less than half of the PPAs that they signed 10 years ago. So, so uh, that was the, the most difficult part because they were not believing us. They were hearing what the Thai and the incumbents players were saying, you know, we need more, more megawatts, but we're at the same price. And we were saying, no, to be competitive and to be acceptable, we have to be competitive with gas. We have to be competitive with other sources of energy. And now the real price, the, the market price of, uh, of, of wind power is way less than $100 per megawatt hour. And when we were saying this, half of the price that you used to pay, they were shocked and not believing us at all. So it took us eight years to convince them we can do it and we can do it at a much lower price. It was not a bidding on price and the price was set at an acceptable price for them and for us developers around, around uh, eight US cents, what could be seen at the real price and the real cost of renewable power, wind power in Thailand today. That was the main obstacle. We have been fortunate enough to be heard by ERC, the government of Thailand. In fact, they accepted to open uh, 1.5 gigawatt of uh, PPAs, new wind uh, capacity, uh, just to see if it's working, if we can do it at that price. So they will watch uh, the sector and we'll see if uh, uh, we are able to deliver uh, because they are much more behind. On the road so, to yeah. net zero in Thailand, uh, we are planning another round of or another 2030 to 2040, seven gigawatts uh, additional to install at least uh, seven to 10. Uh, so we must not miss this one point, but the first 1.5 and demonstrate that we can do it at that price for sure and deliver. Okay, so now it's up to you to deliver. As we mentioned, it wasn't like an option based on the tariff. There, there was a feeling tariff, and but there were a set of detailed criteria the bidders need to meet. Could you just run on the key criteria and the key requirements uh, that you have been able to prove uh, to the authority to ha have the capacity awarded? Yes, very important. It has been a long road coming from abroad. I don't want to condense it on saying this, but wind projects have to be supported by the whole community. It has to give back to the community where they're implemented. We think that everybody, the whole community, the whole village, the whole landowners around, not only below the turbines, around the turbines, but the whole community must benefit from the project. We sign reservation agreement and, and then leases for all the site being the land used by the project, the access road, the overhead lines, underground lines, and turbines and crane pads. Also the land underneath our equipment, we sign everyone. And we make sure that everyone will get paid by the project at the end. So not the same price, of course. The less impacted you are, the less the price that you will get every year. But everybody will get something. And I think that's the way to develop wind projects for the community and with the community and have the full support of the community. That's what we introduced uh, in Thailand. We were the only one to do it. And I think we are still one of the very few to do it. And we emphasize that to ERC, we understood exactly what we were talking about because there have been court cases six years ago against wind projects in central Thailand. So they implemented this 
as a main point in the scoring system. And that's the reason why we got good scores uh, on our projects compared to others. It's a long process. We have teams on the ground, so fantastic job from them. And we have to be local. We are locals in Northeast Island. We are part of the community. And the future project that you're going to see will run for the next 30 years and will be part of the community and give back to the community. Yeah, it seems like localization is a cornerstone in this process. So what are the best and worst memories you can share from your time working as a developer in Asia? Ah, yeah. <laughs> That's always a great question. I have a lot of stories of the Wild West sentiment. An example, one of the very first time uh, in Vietnam, eight years ago, we were looking to invest in projects which would have been already under construction or at advanced stage of development. So we met with this prominent guy, a Vietnamese lawyer, speaking good English, good credentials. And he said we had a project under construction in, in South of Vietnam. So very impressed. On the paper, very good. Everything fine. We did our due diligence. Everything was fine. The last DD point was the site visit. So we organized the site visit, six cars, which were our people, our lawyers, our engineers, uh, they are lawyers, they are engineers. We go to the site, guards at the entrance, construction underway of the turbines, but there was already a small building, O&M facility, and they are starting to work on the connection line. It was uh, 50 people maybe uh, working. So... Pretty impressed. So we came back to the hotel and said, maybe we invest in this one. And I just had a feeling that I wanted to look at it by myself, uh, just to check. Uh, so the next day, when everyone went back to Ho Chi Minh, I went to site alone. When I arrived there, I was very shocked to see that everything was abundant. Everything was stopped. Nobody was there. And literally, the shovel we have seen just the day before in the hands of workers was still there, just still on the ground. But Nothing was moving and nothing was happening. We came back and we happened to learn that, in fact, the seller of the project have hired actors to act as if they were working for the project. So they have done a little bit of investment, but that was all movie theater. It was all just for the set, absolutely all fake. Nothing was moving, nothing, no financing was in place, no investments were being made and we are being far from construction. I don't know if it's the best or worst, but uh, we learned a lot. Thanks, Olivier, for being on the show. Thank you very much. 